What is a monster? I think there are essentially three things that define a monster. One, it is malignant. Two, its motives are either extremely simple or mysterious, unknowable. And three, it isn't real. The first criterion needs no explanation. The second and third are more interesting. Of two and three, the third is easier put. Terror of the unknown, of the dark, of the shut door, of the might be real, is an important part of monstrosity, or maybe monstrousness. If something is real, it is definable. It can be photographed, studied, dissected, touched, known. The kraken becomes the giant squid. A monster becomes an animal. If the Loch Ness Monster were proven to be real, we would find a taxonomic Latin name for it, and it would cease to be a monster and become a specimen of a known species. The second criterion is the most complex and interesting of the three. Its motives are either elementally simple, it wants to kill you because it wants to eat you, it's hungry, or unfathomable, unknowable, a mystery. As soon as a monster's motives are understood, it becomes less monstrous. It is totally understandable why King Kong wants to break out of those chains. He wants out. But why does Godzilla want to destroy Tokyo? Why does Michael Myers in John Carpenter's Halloween movies want to murder people? Specifically, Jamie Lee Curtis's character. I'm sure her character has a name in the script, but whatever it is, it's not memorable or very important. He seems to have a strange vendetta against teenagers who have recently had sex, or, at any rate, having sex is famously a surefire portent of doom for a character in a horror movie. But Jamie Lee Curtis's character never has sex. Perhaps that's why he is never able to kill her. But he still wants to, and mightily tries to. So it can't simply be that he is some kind of puritanical punisher of fornication. Dogged resolve and seeming, or near invulnerability, are also components of a monster's character. But these are, I think, wrapped up in that second one. Existential simplicity of, or absence of, a motive. Last year, Caitlin and I watched John Carpenter's original 1978 movie, and then immediately followed it with the 2018 sequel, with the same title, directed by David Gordon Green. In that movie, which was released 40 years later, and is also set 40 years after the original, and ignores all of the other films in the franchise that were made in between the two, Jamie Lee Curtis's character is now a paranoid survivalist who lives in a heavily fortified compound with lots of booby traps and guns in a remote place in the woods, with a strained relationship with her adult daughter and a closer bond with her teenage granddaughter. Michael Myers escapes from prison and immediately starts to stalk the three women, but especially Jamie Lee Curtis, like a mindless computer programmed to do nothing that is not ultimately in pursuit of the goal of murdering the Jamie Lee Curtis character. Another similar monster, Arnold Schwarzenegger's robot from the future in the first Terminator movie, is a computer mindlessly programmed to complete one goal, killing Sarah Connor. He has an understandable motive, but it is not his own. He has no personal stake in it. And the reason he's killing her is because of something she hasn't done yet. Give birth to John Connor. So from her perspective in 1984, his motives are entirely mysterious. 
The three women all wind up inside the Jamie Lee Curtis character's fortified compound in the woods, and Michael Myers makes his way to and inside the house, trying to kill them. At one point, part of one of Michael Myers' hands gets shot off. A minor setback for him. To continue undeterred in his resolve to doggedly keep on trying to commit an absolutely motiveless murder after part of his hand has been blown off. Classic monster behavior. The near invulnerability of a monster is also wrapped up in an indifference to pain, or an inability to feel pain. The robot from the future might be damaged by a bullet, but it's only damage, not hurt. He doesn't seem to mind, and he keeps right on stomping ever forward without even breaking his stride. Zombies keep on trying to eat you after they've been shot, maimed, even their decapitated heads keep trying to bite you. I read a book a few years ago about the history of rabies. In it, the author floats a theory that many of the monsters of our old and even newer folklore have at their heart an anxiety about rabies. That is why there are so many monsters, werewolf, vampire, zombie, that by biting you, turn you into one of them, infect you with their disease. The zombie himself has no motive. He is not a person anymore. He is simply the vector of a disease that has only one motive, to spread. In stories, I have heard people tell about being attacked or bitten by a rabid animal. That is always a feature of them. In one in particular, a woman described walking home along a rural trail and seeing a raccoon come running straight towards her out of the woods. What a strange and horrifying experience it was. Usually, if you happen to see a raccoon, it's only for a moment before it scurries away from you. But a raccoon running straight towards her was a sight so bizarre that it stopped her in her tracks. She was never at any point afraid, because raccoons are not generally thought of as dangerous animals. She just thought, what the hell, right before the rabid raccoon bit her. She was fine, obviously, as she was still alive and well enough to be telling the story. She got the shot in time, and so on and so forth. The only time I have seen a rabid animal was one morning when I was driving to work. I was in my car on Bard's campus, probably not going faster than about 15 miles an hour. I saw a bandy-legged skunk loping crazily right down the middle of the road. Like a raccoon, usually, if you happen to see a skunk, it's only for a brief moment before it runs away. But this skunk was not crossing the road, but scampering in broad daylight right along the center of it. I thought, that is the weirdest acting skunk I have ever seen, and simply avoided hitting it as I drove past it. The next day, the director of campus security wrote everyone an email. As a matter of fact, I've probably still got it. Hang on, yes, here it is. To the Bard College community. A student was bitten by a rabid skunk yesterday near the library on the soccer field. The student has not been harmed and is okay. Today, the sick skunk has been humanely removed from campus. Only then did I know what I'd seen. I'm not sure what humanely removed means. I don't think there is a cure for rabies once the symptoms set in. The most humane thing to one could have possibly done for that skunk was to put it out of its misery. Anyway, the existential simplicity of, the absence of, the unknowability of, or the being in obedient service of another's motive is, I think, one of the most interesting things about a monster or a monstrous villain. If you want a villain to be a full, round character, give him understandable motives. 
That is the lesson of a story I've heard about Stanley Kowalski's character in A Streetcar Named Desire. Supposedly, in Tennessee Williams' original draft of the play, Stanley was a drunken, wife-beating lout, and a lot older than Stella, a pretty two-dimensional character. When Williams heard that Ilya Kazan had cast a very young, unknown actor, Marlon Brando, to play the role, Williams balked at first, thinking that the actor ought to have been much older. This was on Broadway, before Kazan made the movie with almost the same cast. And Brando, a method actor and a student of Stella Adler, who herself had been a student of Stanislavski. Stanley, Stella, Stella, Stanislavski. Is that intentional, I wonder? Surely not, but it's a funny coincidence. Never played a character without trying to embody the character, to understand the character's inner motivations. So, in order to embody Stanley Kowalski, he had to see and understand the situation from his perspective. Blanche Dubois is a stuck-up, classist princess and a mooch who invades their extremely limited space, interferes with their life, and consumes their resources without contributing a dime of her own. And all the while, Snottily looks down her nose at Stanley for being lower class and having come from an immigrant family. I think at some point in the play she calls him a Pollock. Woody Allen's updated version of Streetcar, Blue Jasmine, almost entirely recasts Blanche as the villain of the story. Ilya Kazan supposedly wrote Tennessee Williams a letter telling him he had to come to New York and see what this kid had done with his character. And when Tennessee Williams saw Brando playing Stanley, he realized that by fully inhabiting the character and understanding Stanley's motives, he had turned Stanley from a flat villain into a round character and made the play better. And then Tennessee Williams rewrote a lot of the play with Brando in mind as Stanley, and that second version is the one that survives and the one that was used for the movie. So, if you want to make a mere villain into a character in the service of creating a realist human drama, try to imagine how things look from that character's perspective, and try to understand his motivations. But if you want a villain to be a monster, flat as a character, and all the more terrifying because of that flatness, then take away his motives. The famous opening line of Joan Didion's Play It As It Lays. What makes Iago evil? Some people ask. I never ask. In my first semester teaching a freshman fiction workshop at Bard, I quoted that line and paused for dramatic effect. There was a moment of silence before one student said, The parrot? Like Iago, the Joker in Batman is meant to be a character of unknowable or absent or nonsensical motives. In the superb Tim Burton movie from 1989, after one of the best scenes in the movie, which is set in a fancy restaurant at an art museum, I think it's based on the restaurant on the second floor of the main atrium in the Met, in which the Joker kills everyone except Vicky Vale in the building with poison gas so that he and his minions while dancing to one of the songs Prince wrote specifically for the movie, which plays diegetically from a boombox, hoisted around by one of the minions, senselessly deface famous artworks. Degas, Monet, the Mona Lisa, etc. There's a great art in-joke in which one of the minions is about to deface one of Francis Bacon's paintings of a hanging beef carcass, but the Joker throws his cane across it and says, Leave this one alone, boys. I kind of like it. Vicky Vale says to Jack Nicholson's Joker, What do you want? The Joker seems to consider the question for a moment, as if it has never occurred to him, licks his teeth, smiles crazily, and says, My face on the one dollar bill. 
In Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight, which is much darker and not as good, although much better than the god-awful movie that Joel Schumacher made in the 90s, Heath Ledger's Joker robs banks only to set all the money on fire, and at one point he says, I'm like a dog chasing a car. He wouldn't know what to do with it if he caught one. Side note, the perfect Batman movie strikes an even balance between darkness and camp. The Joel Schumacher movies are too much camp. The Christopher Nolan movies, too much darkness. The Tim Burton, Michael Keaton movies are just right. I really do believe that most malignant actors in the world are, by far, doing what they consider the right thing, or at least not the wrong thing. As tainted by corruption and ulterior skullduggery as the whole operation was from the beginning, I really do believe that George W. Bush invaded Iraq because he thought it was the right thing to do. It came as kind of a revelation to me when I saw the journalist and Middle East expert Edward Jardet speak at Sarah Lawrence at the height of the Iraq War. I think it was in 2004 or 2005. He was not a supporter of the war exactly, but he did defend some of Bush's motives for starting it. There was a girl sitting next to me who raised her hand in the Q&A and said, What if it's all about the oil? Jardet's response if it really was all about the oil, Bush could have gotten it much more cheaply simply by negotiating with Saddam Hussein directly. Another revelation, and I think Jardet said this the same night, the British Empire never turned a profit. It's true. The British Empire, from whenever it began, sometime in the late 17th century, right up until its collapse right after World War II, never once broke into the black. Whatever their motivations for doing what they did, Greed is one that does not quite make sense. The motives of real people who do evil are complicated, complex, disorganized, sometimes internally contradictory, and they usually do not think of themselves as doing evil. The motives of villains and monsters, when they have them, are simple. Hunger, greed. To make people into villains or monsters, it is necessary to compress and simplify their motives. Hunger, greed, and sex seem to be the big three as far as starkly simple motives that need no further explanation. Perhaps chemical dependency too, but if you see addiction as a disease, that one is more morally excusable. Hannah Arendt understood this, and Eichmann in Jerusalem is all about it. The banality of evil, her famous phrase. Israel wanted very badly for Adolf Eichmann to be a villain, to be a monster, to be motivated by racist hatred, to be smart, to be a worthy adversary finally getting his comeuppance. He wasn't any of these things. He was just a profoundly mediocre, stupid bureaucrat who was just doing his job. Our house has mice. A mouse problem. Just about every house in Tivoli, New York has a mouse problem. I was baiting the old-fashioned Tom and Jerry-style snap traps with peanut butter. Half the time it worked, but seemingly more often it didn't. They would lick it clean off the trap trigger without setting it off. That's when I started using the sticky glue traps. Those are much more effective. You don't have to bait them either. You just lay them sticky side up in a place mice are known to frequent, at the corner of the kitchen counter where they run behind the stove in our case. The first morning that I came downstairs to check the trap, there were not one but two mice stuck to it. They were alive. They have been shitting themselves in terror all night. When I looked at those mice, the feelings in their little faces, if you can call them faces, were unmistakable. Confusion, panic, terror. This is a mammal, a creature with a mother, 
not very far away at all from humans on the tree of life. Their experience of the world is much more accessible to us than, much closer to ours than, say, a lobster, a mosquito, a squid. I actually tried to pry one of them off the trap, thinking maybe I could drive a distance away from the house and set them free in the woods or something, but that doesn't work. They are stuck fast. If you try to peel them off, they're likely to leave their feet in the glue. The most humane thing you can do for them now, just like that rabid skunk, is simply to end their worlds. I thought about how to do it for a while and settled on drowning. I filled a big bowl full of water and turned the trap upside down in it. I watched the glue trap bob and jerk on the surface of the water for half a minute before they drowned and quit moving. The first time I did this, I was honestly heartbroken, mortified, remorseful, full of an awful guilt and shame. I honestly nearly cried. The next time I had to drown a mouse, I felt almost nothing. The third time, pretty much nothing at all. Eventually, I went back to the snap traps, which are much more humane. They kill the mouse pretty much instantaneously. One of Temple Grandin's mantras about animal psychology is, fear is worse than pain. But I switched the bait I was using. I learned this from a very weird guy whose unnecessarily lengthy YouTube video on this subject is one of the first things that pops up when you Google how to bait a mousetrap. Bottom line, do not use peanut butter. It's much too easy for them to lick it off without triggering the trap. Peanut butter only works about 50% of the time. The second best way to bait a mousetrap is to bite off a little bit of a Tootsie Roll or a Milk Dud, get it warm and soft with your saliva, hot tap water also works just fine, and pinch a glob of the warm, wet, chocolatey goo onto the lever of the trap. When it dries, it will be both sticky and hard and impossible to get off easily. This works. The best method, however, is to take a dab of Elmer's glue and glue a pretzel or a piece of cooked bacon directly onto the lever of the trap. This method is just about fail-safe. Anyway, I really do think that in most cases, what we call psychopathy or sociopathy can be learned, can be trained into someone, anyone probably, by their circumstances and by repetition. Committers of unimaginable institutional evil, slave owners, concentration camp guards, were in almost all cases just mediocre, normal people who saw themselves as simply doing their jobs. That the people who committed such terrible evil were simply normal people with perfectly mundane motivations, that is, getting paid, advancing their careers, and so on, is in fact much more disturbing and discomforting than if they had been villains or monsters for real. When you monsterize people, you flatten their motives, you flatten their characters, you ultimately give yourself comfort. That is why we do it. To look clearly at the banality of evil is something no one wants to do. Gentlemen, let's broaden our minds. Lawrence? <laughs>